Uh, This morning uh, marks the launch of a brand new series that's going to run from now pretty much through to the end of September, uh, working our way through the entire book of Acts. I want to set the scene this morning by initially transporting you back in time to the middle of the 18th century in France and Britain. It was the early days of the Industrial Revolution, as I'm sure the historians in the room had already kind of uh, equated 18th century Industrial Revolution. And back then, the inequalities between the rich and the poor were fueling this pretty deep social and political unrest. Now, over the channel in France, it exploded into this pretty violent revolution that lasted the best part of 10 years, resulted in much loss of life. But here in Britain, something else happened. Historians pretty much concede that what happened instead of a bloody revolution was a spiritual revolution that came to be known as the Great Awakening. Get this, first few decades of the Great Awakening, a fifth to a sixth of the entire British population found themselves converted and swept up into churches. After that, next few decades saw a tremendous amount of social healing. And here's why. Vast swathes of the population had received a fresh power and a fresh truth, a whole new force at work in their lives and a completely new way of thinking that moved them toward being just and generous with their resources. As many of you know, the converts of the Great Awakening, they oversaw the abolishing of the slave trade in the British Empire. There was a reform in the child labor laws. There was a huge increase in literacy. Why? Because of the power of the gospel at work in the lives of many. I don't know what you think, but today, faced with the increasing social unrest, the massive local government cutbacks, growing uncertainty about Brexit, not to mention the noticeable moral decline all around us, I suggest our nation can only really be saved through another great awakening. And so really what we're going to be doing this year is taking a much closer look at the impact of perhaps the greatest awakening ever. It's an indisputable fact that about 2,000 years ago, there was this tiny group of peasants and fishermen and slaves who came to believe themselves that Jesus Christ was the pre-existent Son of God who came to earth, became flesh, died, and then rose again from the dead. Now, when it all began, that little ramshackle group had no political power, no educational power, no cultural power, no economic power, didn't really have a whole lot going for them, and yet within two centuries, it had completely and utterly transformed one of the greatest civilizations in the history of the world. Swept up millions and millions of people in the Roman Empire into a joy and a peace and a life they'd never known before. Ended up becoming the leading force 
in a Roman society that eventually began to disintegrate and fall apart. So that by the third century, the emperor had to acknowledge that this was now a Christian society because it was the Christians and the Christians alone who were keeping that whole world together. Now, as far as I'm aware, there's only one full historical document that we have today that's written by an actual eyewitness of the early days of that first awakening. Talking, of course, about Luke, who wrote the book of Acts. It is an absolutely breathtaking book. Among other things, it shows us what an awakening would really be like, what, what it would do, the impact it would have, how it would come, how we could seek it today, and some of the consequences of it. However, as we work our way through the book of Acts over the next few months, I'm telling you, my hope and prayer is that it would be so much more than a kind of dry, dusty history lesson where we look at the stories on the page and say, well, yeah, great, it happened then, but so what? Listen, I am full of expectation that God will do something deep in us as a church, that God will begin more and more to awaken us and do a phenomenal work through us in our time and our place. That's why I'm here this morning. That's why we're doing this series. And I want you to raise your heads, as Mark was saying earlier, raise your expectation levels for God to do in our time what we read about in the pages of Acts. You up for that? Okay, let's keep going then. What I want to do this morning is simply look at the first eight verses of the first chapter of the story. More specifically, I want us to examine these verses and try and work out for ourselves what lay at the heart of this remarkable move of God and how could it possibly be sparked in us today. So first of all then, what was the original essence? What was the genius of that first Christianity? What lay at the heart of it? Now I'm guessing that most of us think we already know what Christianity is all about. I mean, fair few Christians in the room right now, fair assumption, we probably know what it's all about. Christianity, it's basically God loves us, Jesus died to forgive us, so now God can forgive us if we ask for forgiveness, and now we're supposed to be forgiving to others. We're supposed to live lives of love to the people around us. What's the big deal? Everyone knows what Christianity is all about. But let me ask you something. Have you, with your own eyes, ever seen Christianity doing what it did to the Roman Empire or what it did here in the British Isles in the 18th century? Have you ever seen it sweeping up millions of people into a peace and joy that they've never known before? Have you ever seen it running rampantly through whole communities? Have you ever seen it transforming society in such a radical way? If you were to ask the average person what they see when they look at Christianity today, I think a lot of people are going to say, at worst, I see a narrow, guilt-producing institution. At best, I see a kind of comforting thing that you can use when you're in trouble. That's what most people see or think of when they look at Christianity. But that cannot be the original Christianity. But you see, Why would the Christianity that you observe now and the Christianity that we know indisputably did those things historically, why would they be so different? 
Well, it's pretty simple. Sure, it means that the average person today in some way misunderstands Christianity. Average person in Birmingham misunderstands Christianity radically. Because whenever the essence of Christianity has been understood on a widespread scale, it's become this dynamic force that transforms society. I suggest the only reason it's perhaps not such a dynamic force right now in our country, the way it was in other times, is because people don't fully understand it. So what is that essential genius? What might we have missed somewhere along the way? Well, in a sense, fortunately, and helpfully for this message, you can see the answers in verses 1, 2, and 3 of Acts chapter 1. It says, in my first book, that was Luke's gospel, uh, Acts is kind of the sequel. In my first book, I told you Theophilus. Theophilus is the person that Luke was writing it all to, and we get to eavesdrop on the conversation. In my first book, I told you Theophilus about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive and he talked to them about the kingdom of God. First of all, first thing we see here, whole essence of Christianity, the genius of it is it is all about something that Jesus has already begun to do. Now the reason that is so important, is because Christianity is all about what Jesus does, not about what you have done. You know, it's very common nowadays for people to say, well, I think Christianity is just this wonderful model of forgiveness and love and care for others. But at the end of the day, I'm convinced that all good people, no matter who they are, if they try really hard and live a good kind of life, they can reach God whether they believe in Jesus or not. But what Luke's saying here is, Christianity at its heart is not about living a good life. It's not primarily about anything you do at all. It's all about what Jesus has done. And what's he done? Well, first of all, it says here he's suffered and died. Now, if you were to flick through the pages of the Old Testament, uh, sure enough, you would find it's filled with lots of stuff about how to live, lots of laws and explanations, do this, don't do that. So a lot of things about how to be a good person, how to live a good life. But it's also filled with a tremendous amount of blood and guts. It's like you can never come to the temple, you could never come uh, to a place of worship to meet God without having to sacrifice things to cover your guilt. And I'll tell you why. It's not enough just to be a good person. Because every single one of us does things that are wrong that leave a kind of residue or barrier between us and God. The average person who accepts there might be a God tends to say, well, if you live a good life and try really hard to be a better person, then you'll be fine. However, that is a deeply flawed way of thinking. I mean, imagine if you took that viewpoint into a court of law. If a a judge found Russ guilty, let's say, of shooting me at the end of this meeting and running off with the offering, and Russ appeared before the judge in the court of law and said, look, hands up, I'm guilty. I mean, 
there were witnesses. People saw me do it. I, I'm guilty. Fair cop. But I am trying really hard to do better. And I'm really, really very sorry for killing my friend Jonathan. What do you think the judge would say? The judge would probably say, great, Russ, but you know what? I can't just let you go free. It wouldn't be safe for the streets of Birmingham to let you prowl around for a while. There's something left over that has to be paid for here. There's this barrier. There's this problem. We can't run a society if you do something awful and then say, I'm really sorry, I'll try and do better next time. And there's no punishment. There's no payment. There has to be payment. Now, if you can't run a society that way, how in the world could you ever think of running a universe that way? If we would criticize a judge who says, fine, you're sorry, I'll let you off then. There's no punishment for the wrong you've done. You'd fire a judge like that, wouldn't you? I mean, it'd be headline news. How dare the judge behave like that? So how in the world do you expect to have a God like that? Why would you have lower standards for God than you do for an earthly judge? God says, look at your inhumanity to your neighbor, your unfaithfulness to your creator. Maybe you are sorry for it. Maybe you're trying really hard to do better. But there is still a residue. There is punishment. There are consequences for your actions. It does have to be paid for. As Paul puts it in Romans 6, 23, the wages or the payback for sin ultimately is death. It's coming for all of us. Now, in this little phrase, in this passage, he suffered and died, wonderfully we're told what Jesus has done about all of this. Bible uses loads of different metaphors, pictures, but this is one of the key ways it paints the picture. Jesus stood directly in front of death and destruction, has a right to take us. It should be coming for all of us. It is our due. But Jesus stands between us and it, and he says, I will not let you have my brothers and sisters. As a result, all of the weight of the judgment of death and destruction comes down on him instead of us. He takes the punishment and suffers in our place. And as a result, the barrier between us and God is completely obliterated. That's the first thing he's done. He suffered in our place so that we wouldn't have to. Secondly, we're told here, he also showed that he was alive. Verse 3, he appeared to the apostles from time to time and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. Now, I reckon there's a bit of a tendency nowadays for people to say, well, yeah, of course they believe Jesus was raised from the dead. I mean, they were a primitive bunch of peasants who were way more gullible than we are today. But if you were to read through the pages of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you'd see that when Jesus pitched up, the disciples, his closest friends, didn't say, ah, we knew that was what was going to happen. We are waiting for you to come back. No, they say, without fail, this cannot be. There's got to be some kind of hallucination. It must be a ghost. Or this is a hoax. This cannot be real. You know, when Jesus showed up, to say, I'm resurrected, he had a significantly harder audience than we have today. 
He had to convince a bunch of people who literally stood there watching him nailed to the cross, brutally crucified. But convince them he did. Now, why was it so important to convince them? I mean, a lot of people say, well, we have his teaching, don't we? I mean, why did he have to convince them that he was raised from the dead? Don't you see, though? If you've merely saved yourself by Jesus' teaching, by you trying really hard to live it out and apply it to your life and be a good person, then it's all about you. It's what you've done. It's you saving yourself. It makes it all about what you have done. But the whole essence of Christianity is it's what Jesus has done. Jesus comes. He shows himself to be the one who suffered and died in your place. And the way we can know with absolute certainty that he is who he says he is and he really has accomplished everything he came to do is the fact he actually did miraculously physically rise from the dead. As a result of that, the first church in the book of Acts were 100% certain that Jesus had accomplished salvation for them. And because of the resurrection, we can be as well. First of all then, it's crucially important that we grasp that Christianity is all about what Jesus has done. The other part of the essence of Christianity that we see here is that it's what Jesus began to do and teach. Now when that word began... I think Luke's telling us something pretty profound here. You know, the founder of pretty much every other major religion has already done all the things they'll ever do. They've already taught all the things they will ever teach. But Jesus has only just begun. Jesus isn't yet finished. Part of the essence of that original genius of Christianity was that Jesus hasn't just died and risen, he's also ascended. He has been taken up in glory. Right now, he is sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven. What does that mean? What's amazing about this text is it shows us that Jesus goes up, not to get away from us, I've just had enough of them, I'm going somewhere way more comfortable, Now, Jesus goes up to continue. He's only just begun what he came to do. Why did Jesus go up? Well, in John 16, he says, I have to go up so that I can send the Holy Spirit to you. He says in John 14, you will do greater things than me. Do you know what that's talking about? The ascension doesn't mean that Jesus is absent and he's no longer here. The ascension means Jesus is now here, there, and everywhere. Listen, when he was on earth, he could only do and teach through one human body, somewhat limited. But now he can do it through millions of human bodies all around the world. Listen, he goes to heaven not to get away, quite the opposite. The ascension of Christ means that now he's present in us through the Holy Spirit. It's like his power radiates from the throne in heaven out into the entire world through us. 
whole essence of Christianity is that Jesus faced suffering and death for us, and now he works from heaven through us. Now, here's a question for you. When you come along to a meeting like this, what do you expect? Let me confess a sin. Aha, some of you wondering, what's he about to say? This could get very interesting. Let me confess a sin. If I prepare a sermon like this one, and I show up, and in my heart of hearts, basically, this is my attitude. I'm thinking, well, here we go again. Hope there are a few more people here than there were last time. Hope things go well. Hope I don't forget my main points. Hope a few people at least can remember one of my points afterwards. And I tell you what, I'm so looking forward to getting home and putting my feet up and watching the football this afternoon. If I have that attitude, I've forgotten the ascension. If you have that kind of attitude, you have too. And you open up the Bible to read it. When you sit down to pray, when you come to worship, whether it's by yourself or with others like this, when you open your mouth to talk to someone else about Jesus Christ, you open up your heart to come alongside to help or encourage someone in Jesus' name, what do you expect? Look, if Jesus is ascended, you shouldn't merely expect a little inspiration every now and again you should expect nothing short of revolution. You should expect transformation to take place. You you should expect to change the world in some way. You should expect him to continue through you what he began 2,000 years ago. Look, if Jesus didn't just suffer and die, but he is also now risen and ascended, then we can have every confidence that he is going to continue what he began. So do you see what Luke's saying? He's saying, I'm not about to tell you what Jesus continues to do and teach. That right there is the essence of Christianity. Jesus faced suffering and death for you, and now he works his power out from heaven through you. If you're a Christian here today, you understand all of that, I want to appeal to you. Won't you give up your small ambitions? Repent of your low expectations. Won't you stop looking at your problems like they are things that are always going to define you? Stop looking at your Bad habits, areas of compromise in your life, like things you can never ever expect to get over. Stop looking at the problems in your place of work or in your family, in this city, in the UK, maybe on the news in terms of what's happening in other parts of the world. Stop looking at those problems as mountains that could never ever be moved. I mean, how dare we? If Jesus is still alive, And if he's still very much at work in the world, doesn't that change everything? All that being said, how can the original essence of Christianity, the genius of what I've just said, how can that be received by us today? 
Well, just to recap, we've seen, haven't we, that the heart of Christianity is an understanding that our faith doesn't rest on our performance. Hallelujah, that is such good news. It rests on what Jesus has done for us. And later on, we get back into a place of worship, thanking him some more for what he's done for us. And because of what Jesus has done for us, our Father in heaven now welcomes us with open arms. He embraces us. He pours his own power and glory into our life. And his purpose in all of this is to continue his work in the world through us. Now that's the theory. But how can that become a living reality in our lives? Because I think probably a lot of us already know that stuff. But how can it become real for us? Well, very quickly, let me show you two more principles that we see here in this passage. Here's the first one. You cannot receive the awakening power of Jesus unless you believe that the facts of Christianity are objectively true. You have to believe that Christianity is objectively true, really true for everyone. Look at verse 8. What does Jesus say? He says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses to whom? To, To all the people who Christianity might possibly help I mean, just try and search out people for whom it's relevant. No, he says, you'll be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. Jesus says, this is true for everyone, everywhere. Which means that the average person who's kind of spiritually searching, when they say, well, look, I'd like to find out whether Christianity is true for me, I'd like to find out if it's going to work for me. When they say that, they're kind of missing the whole point. I mean, let's look at this pragmatically for a second. How in the world can you be sure that Christianity will work for you? What does that even mean? You'll always be happy? There'll never ever be any more problems in your life? Life will automatically go perfectly well for you from now on. That isn't how life works. Oh, just by way of contrast, let's say, for example, that you decide that you're going to be a musician. What you'll discover sooner or later is that there are many places in which being a musician is extremely impractical and unfulfilling. And yet, If over time, over years of practice and perseverance and discipline, you keep going with it, eventually it does become enormously fulfilling. But at what point do you know when it works for you? Some days it'll seem like it really is working. Others, it won't. Listen, being a Christian won't appear to be working for you if you find that in order to be true to Christ and refuse to tell lies in your job, you end up losing your job. Is Christianity working for you if people at school mock you and make fun of you for your face? Is it working for you if you come to see that Jesus doesn't want you sleeping with your boyfriend and so he dumps you? Is it working if you pray for God to heal you And your symptoms actually get worse. 
Is it working if you give in faith and then completely out of the blue receive a bill in the post that you can't now afford to pay? Please, don't start by trying to figure out whether Christianity works. That's not what Jesus says. First of all, you need to figure out if Christianity is true. Now look, if Jesus really is the Son of God who came to earth, if he not only died but rose again from the dead, if he's really ascended, if he's going to come back to judge the world as he says he will, if what Jesus said about himself and about the nature of the universe is true, then of course Christianity would work. Don't get me wrong, it doesn't guarantee an easy life, where everything works out perfectly in line with what you want, but it does enable you to go through trials and problems and difficulty and pain and uncertainty all times of prosperity and success with humility and a different perspective and real hope and a deep joy that doesn't come from your circumstances and peace through it all. Because to know Jesus is to find your designer and your design and you will be utterly fulfilled in relationship with him in the end. But what if Christianity isn't true? What if Jesus' claims aren't right? What if somewhere, right now, his bones are rotting in a grave? What if the disciples had got it completely wrong? They were deluded, or maybe they were blatant liars. Well, Christianity can't work for anyone, except in the short run as some kind of placebo. So you need to begin by figuring out if it's true. Was Jesus really the Son of God? Did he actually physically, miraculously rise from the dead? Is it true? If it's true, of course it will work for you. Perhaps not in ways you expect or would want or choose, but it will work. But if it's not true, it won't work for you. The one thing it couldn't possibly be is just working for some people. Don't you see? It's either useful for everyone or it's useless to everyone. But it can't be useful for some people. The whole nature of the claims we've been looking at already today, they make that impossible. Secondly, and finally, the way we receive this now isn't just by seeing that Christianity is objectively true for everyone out there, but that it is personally true for you. Remember how Jesus says in verse 8, you will be my witnesses. Well, you can't be a witness to something that you haven't actually witnessed. Now, over the next few months, rest assured, we're going to be seeing a tremendous amount about the equipping power of the Holy Spirit. That's one of the things that's exciting me most about this series. We're going to be learning about and, I'm praying, experiencing a whole lot more of the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the call to be witnesses here is preceded by the promise of receiving the Spirit's power. Such an exciting promise. And what I want you to see today really is simply the power of just believing and experiencing firsthand the truth of the gospel message. Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. 
You know, the truths that we've been talking about, of Jesus' suffering and death, resurrection, ascension, this truth about Jesus Christ carries incredible power. You know, elsewhere, Paul says that there are some people who have a form of godliness, but in their lives they deny its power. You see, it's possible to have a kind of subscription to general Christian belief and yet still have no power in your life. But real Christianity, genuine Christianity, is always this intersection of truth and power. Never one without the other. It is not real Christianity if you just have general belief. I'm telling you, if you believe that you have the truth and you understand Christianity, but there's no power in your life, you don't yet fully understand it. There's a guy called Michael Green. He makes this comment in his excellent book on evangelism in the early church. He says, neither the strategy nor the tactics of the first Christians were particularly remarkable. I think he's being a little bit harsh there, but never mind. Not particularly remarkable. What was remarkable, though, was their conviction, their passion, and their determination to act as Christ's embassy to a rebel world, whatever the consequences. Now, where do you think this conviction, this passion, this determination came from? What do you think caused them to tell other people about Jesus often at great cost to themselves. Why wouldn't they shut up about him even when it meant torture, imprisonment, and death? I think the answer's simple. They had seen Jesus suffer and die. And they had seen convincing proof that he was raised from the dead. And that was enough to compel them to passionately take the message about Jesus to the people around them, regardless of the consequences. It's like all the things that used to drive them or control them or scare them, cause them to be anxious or fearful, they no longer had any power, any hold, any control over them. Knowing the truth that Jesus is alive revolutionized their whole life. And over time, ended up revolutionizing the whole world. Listen, the great need of our day, I believe, is an awakening in the church to the power of the message we say we believe. I'll tell you, Birmingham would be turned upside down if every person in every church meeting across this city this morning was genuinely able to proclaim, I am not ashamed of the gospel because I'm convinced it is the power of God that brings salvation. That would turn this city upside down. Now, we can't answer for others, but we can for ourselves. So let me ask you, have you seen that? Do you have power like this in your life? Has there been this kind of 
revolution in you. If you say, well, I'm not sure really, then you can tell me that you understand the truth of Christianity, but you don't yet fully grasp it. And really my appeal to you would be to make it an absolute priority to work out whether the gospel message really is true. And if you believe it is, to go and live in the good of it. And then let the revolution begin.